lovelies, and welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here with you once again on the Outsports Podcast Network, and we have a doozy of an episode this week. Obviously, you saw uh, the the length whenever you downloaded it. Because uh, I got the chance to sit down for close to two hours with uh, Dave Bradshaw, uh, the one of the major voices in uh, British pro wrestling, and even extending further into the uh, wider European pro wrestling scene. Um, Dave has done play-by-play for uh, a, basically a who's who list of professional wrestling. Uh, companies, everyone from New Japan Pro Wrestling to AAA and CMLL in Mexico, to uh, being the voice of uh, Defiant Wrestling, uh, which started off as What Culture Pro Wrestling. But play by play is just one facet of uh, Dave's contributions to the pro wrestling world over the years. Um, he served as a behind-the-scenes producer uh, for wrestling events as well as live productions, uh, Q and As, and stuff like that. It worked with Jim Ross whenever he did his tour over there in the UK a few years back. And um, also fits into our Journalist January month here because he's done some work in the uh, the wrestling media as well. Um, previously wrote for Fighting Spirit UK, now um, doing a little bit of writing and hosting with WrestleTalk over in the UK, and uh, recently came out as a gay man publicly for the first time in a piece earlier this month for WrestleTalk magazine where um, he discussed LGBTQ representation historically in pro wrestling over the the last 25 or so odd years. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great read and I was uh, very, very honored to have the chance to speak with Dave and you know, not just talk about his experiences in pro wrestling and about the piece that he wrote, but also about you know coming to that place where he felt comfortable coming out publicly. Something that uh, you know is a very, very big deal for <laughs> the majority of us in the community. So um, just really glad that he had the chance to sit down and talk with me. But before we get to my conversation with with Dave, I do want to shout out uh, the Out in the Ring documentary. Uh, because they are holding a fundraiser um, on February 6th and 7th that I'm going to be a part of. Uh, the director, uh, Ryan Levy, has uh, put together a uh, vast array of LGBTQ uh, pro wrestlers, people within pro wrestling, even gotten some uh, some 80s and 90s era uh, scream queens to kind of come together collectively for um, a two days, basically, of panels and discussions uh, on oh, I am assuming is going to be a wide swath of topics, uh, with pro wrestling definitely among them, um, all to uh, raise money for production of the documentary out in the ring, as well as a portion of the proceeds going to the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Um, I am going to be part of that. You can uh, tune in on Friday, February 6th, at 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, I'm going to be on uh, on for an hour with MV Young, uh, Reese Indigo, 
and Perry Von Vicious. It's going to be a blast. I'm really looking forward to it. $10 gets you in to see the panels as well as two raffle tickets because they are raffling off a number of pieces of memorabilia from all kinds of wrestlers. Um, not just LGBTQ, but across the entire spectrum. Everyone from Allison K to Sunny Kiss to Effie to um, MV Young, just so many different people uh, and, and things there. So $10 gets you two raffle tickets and an admission to the panels. And of course, you can purchase additional raffle tickets as well for all of the, the fun goodies that they're going to have available for everybody to win. Uh, if you want more details, just go check out at Out in the Ring on Twitter. Uh, it's going to be a blast, and I can't wait. Uh, I will not delay any further, though. Let's get right into... Our third installment for Journalist January, Dave Bradshaw. What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? Welcome back to LGBT in the Ring, and we continue uh, Journalist January here by welcoming someone who has done it all almost in pro wrestling. He's worked um, for uh, multiple publications, uh, Fighting Spirit over in the UK, as well as uh, a recent, a uh, very personal article in uh, Russell Talk magazine um, where he came out publicly for the first time as a gay man. Uh, but you probably know him best from his work on commentary with companies like New Japan Pro Wrestling, AAA, CMLL, the German Wrestling Federation, and probably where I know him the most from, where a lot of people might know him the most from, WCPW, which became Defiant Wrestling in the UK. Dave Bradshaw, welcome to LGBT in the Ring. Wow, thank, what an introduction. Thank you, Brian. Pleased <laughs> uh, to be here. Ah, it's an introduction that's worthy of you, though, because like you, you've done a lot in this industry and, and for, for a, a vast amount of time, over a decade in the business, um, working with not just doing commentary and, and writing about pro wrestling, but also hosting live events, doing production work um, behind the scenes with a lot of people. You've worked with so many amazing people. I mean, the one that blows my mind is the fact that you work with Jim Ross which is like just crazy to me as someone who grew up as a wrestling fan in the nineties, like, like he was the voice of a generation for a lot of us. And that's just, I, I can only imagine what that experience is like, but the main reason why, like, obviously all these experiences I want to get into, but I really want to talk to you a bit about the article that you published this month in Russell talk magazine, because like, like I said, in the intro, you came out publicly for the first time as, as a gay man. And you did so in an article that really chronicles the history of LGBTQ representation in wrestling, hitting a lot of high points, everything from Gorgeous George to Chris Canyon to Gold Dust, Billy and Chuck, and even like you know the stuff that's happening now over in uh, over in the UK with uh, the creation of Pride Pro and having the chance to sit down with Reese Ryan, who is someone who has been thoroughly entertaining and just his star keeps shining brighter over the recent years. Um, and we'll get, and I do want to get into that that article with you a bit more. But before we get there, talk to me a little bit about where the uh, beginnings for Dave Bradshaw are in pro wrestling. When did you start uh, becoming a fan, and, and what kind of drew you to to the business? Well, I'm I'm sad to say I'm 37 now, so I was around when um, the first kind of wave of Hulkamania hit hit the UK. Okay. So, 91. You know, I don't know how much you know about how wrestling was aired in the UK in the 90s, but it was on Sky TV, right, satellite. And so not that many houses had satellite or cable TV 
in the early 90s my parents didn't my, my parents were the kind who thought like five channels which is what you had if you just had an aerial you know five channels is more than enough mm. so, so i was like <laughs> no because wrestling is on like sky you know satellite so um we you kind of had to rely on anyone you knew like friends from school or family members or my one of my dad's work colleagues i think had satellite and so we would get them to record big pay-per-views big wwf pay-per-views off off sky onto like a vhs tape and then i would get to watch it maybe a couple of days later a few days later so this was the early 90s like 91 92 i was a big ultimate warrior fan um hilariously given (laughs) (laughs) on on lgbtq people uh, which subsequently emerged but yeah so i was a big warrior fan uh big brett hitman heart fan uh big i mean just like macho man randy savage now do you know what randy savage is one of those guys who I didn't realize at the time was awesome hmm. because his job was to make everyone else look awesome. Uh, I went to SummerSlam at Wembley in 92 at Wembley Stadium and, hmm. and it, was, it was Warrior against Macho Man in the, in the world title match. The event is more famous, of course, for the Bulldog Hitman match. But, uh, but I was a big Warrior fan. You know, I went to that match during the Warrior, whereas, like, which I'm kind of ashamed of now because you look back and you think, man, like Savage carried him to some incredible matches there and at WrestleMania 7. So yeah, I was in that kind of that Hulkamania era. And then like all things, they wrestling kind of stopped being the big thing in, in playgrounds across the, the UK as people move on to the next thing, yo-yos or roller skates or whatever it was. But I kind of stayed being a, a wrestling fan. And I'm pleased to say we got we got satellite TV in like 97 just in okay. time attitude era so that it was a little bit easier when wrestling's second boom period in the uk came around <laughs> well that's uh very very uh lucky that you ended up getting that so you could tune into the the boom period there uh, i do like talk a little bit more about the early 90s because like i started watching in 96 or late 95 so like i i'm kind of, i'm familiar with the era beforehand just from like going to like video rental stores and renting old pay-per-views like i think like that's how i watched every wrestlemania up until like wrestlemania 12 um and that sort of thing and you know looking back on that era um i too became a very big ultimate warrior fan uh ironically in the same way that, that you speak to it now um where like <laughs> It's so hard to look back on that era now with the the knowledge that you have of these people as people. Um, But that's, I guess that's true for anybody that kind of grows up in pro wrestling is that eventually you start to see not necessarily the characters, but more so the people behind the characters and start to respect things other than just the the blanket presentation that's there for you. Because I'm with you in that I think I looked at Randy Savage course this was like wcw area randy savage but i looked at randy savage as somebody who um was awesome but at the at the time that i was watching wasn't like a major focus of any promotion and i don't know like it's it always felt like there was some kind of like he always felt underserved in that way and you know it's only like years later that i look back and like oh no this dude was like legit rad like him and ddp in wcw in 97 was like almost like 
if not for Sting and Hogan during that year, like DDP and Savage would have been like the rivalry to end all rivalries of that year. And so much of that gets forgotten, I think, um, in the moment. So I, I'm totally yeah. with you on that. Well, I, interestingly, I never watched WCW during that period. Oh. It wasn't on TV. or If it was, it was on a really obscure like cable channel. So I never watched WCW in from that kind of 94 period when Hogan came in. I never watched the NWO or Goldberg. I knew they existed because the internet was starting to exist by then. But um, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't watch any of that. The, my, my WCW experience, if you like, is it was on one of the five channels we did have back in like 91, 92 on Saturday nights at like 1 a.m. They used to show WCW Saturday night. And so I would tape it overnight and I could watch it the next day. So when I think of WCW, I think of like Blonde Sting, I think of Big Van Vader, Cactus Jack, Ric Flair for some of it, Rick Rude, uh, Ricky Steamboat. Those, those kind of guys were the were the big names in the era of WCW. And interestingly, that's the era I now want to watch again. I guess it's nostalgia, right? If I go on the network, I want to go and watch Sting against Vader from '92. I don't want to watch an NWO match from '97. You know, yeah, I, I I totally understand that too, because like you know I I grew up in the South, like in that NWA area, so like it was very much like WCW first growing up down there, and you know that kind of led you to look back at that NWA era, and like there's we talk about like people that aren't appreciated in their time, like there's so many people from that WCW from that NWA area era, um, and the that early WCW that aren't appreciated i think um obviously now like mick foley gets his due from everyone but that era cactus jack is amazing um and like, there's just so many like i i look back at like ron simmons and um <laughs> and butch reed and like so many like i, I can go on and on and on it's but don't want to get into like just a listing of names here but <laughs> but the, like there's a lot of fun eras to go back and revisit whenever whenever you're having the chance to kind of dig back into pro wrestling's past but whenever you did get your satellite uh in 97 and got to engage with wwf on a much more regular basis who were some of the people in that era that that you gravitated towards that really like sucked you in and and kept that passion going for you i was always more the rock than stone cold mm. whatever reason i actually i think i appreciate stone cold more now looking back at, at that kind of carnage every week you know that you never knew what was going to happen next between him and vince on raw that was that was cool, but that wasn't yeah, that wasn't my he wasn't my top guy. It was definitely the rock. And then later, sort of ninety-nine, I remember one of my favorite wrestling matches ever, just because it, I'd never seen anything like it before, was when the Hardys and Edge and Christian had the, the ladder match at, at No Mercy, which was sort of the the prologue, if you like, to the TLC matches and everything that would that would come later. So I was a big, big Hardy Boys fan. I think the Hardys made wrestling cool again or helped make wrestling cool again much like the rock and stone cold did and and yeah there were a few guys mick foley as well i think mick foley is remains one of wrestling's greatest storytellers particularly after i'd after you if you were a wrestling fan at that time it was the same time he brought out his autobiography have a nice day and when you'd read that stuff and then you obviously i knew who he was because of cactus jack in in wcw like i said but once you read about 
all the really creative stuff he did in WCW and in ECW and all that kind of stuff. You couldn't have a more sympathetic baby face once you know his backstory. So once you're getting into like the year 2000, was it or like 99 when he first wins the world title and then 2000 when he has that, uh, the program with Triple H that ends up in a retirement match, a Hell in a Cell match, that kind of stuff I thought and was some of the most emotionally affecting storytelling still that I think WWE have ever have ever done. Um, so yeah, huge Foley fan, Rock Hardys. Nice. No, I, I'm I'm with you on Mick Foley. Like I, there's just something about I always I tend to go back to that street fight at Royal Rumble with him and Triple H, as um. Obviously, it's not the most um, emotionally stimulating of the matches. Like, I think the Hell in the Cell matches more so just because it is, like, at the time, like, we thought, like, that was the last time we we're going to see McFoley in a ring. But there's so much that you can, like, dissect from just that one uh, street fight at Royal Rumble with how McFoley is, like, working to, you know, elevate Triple H in the way that he is, but also still, like, bring back these elements of the old cactus jack into this new form of cactus jack um and i don't know it's just he has a brilliant mind for the for for this business and i i can't say enough good things about mick foley honestly yeah i think the year 2000 i think is my favorite year of wwf ever mm. i think it's got consistently such good stuff the royal rumble pay-per-view top to bottom in 2000 was incredible then there's the, the uh, retirement match like you say at no way out and then there was WrestleMania was kind of actually one of the weaker pay-per-views that year, but Backlash was incredible. Judgment Day had an Iron Man match. You know, just this string of great pay-per-views. And then even Armageddon at the end of the year where they had that crazy six-man hill in a cell was was awesome. And it was right at a time I was just like 17, 18, so we were just finishing high school. And my friends were into it again, even the ones, the ones who were kind of just casual fans for most of our childhood. Wrestling was like cool again. So yeah, I have very fond memories of... of 2000 <laughs> no so um obviously like you you keep watching uh beyond that at what point do you look at pro wrestling as an industry that you actually want to get into um i think probably well 2002 i, I trained briefly yeah the wrestler and it was a, a disaster because i was in no way physically equipped to be a professional wrestler. But it was interesting because this, this was at a time when there wasn't quite the abundance of wrestling schools that you'll find nowadays uh, in the UK. So so it, it was interesting to learn. And, and actually, I suppose some of the stuff I learned has helped me as a commentator because I learned basics, right? I learned I learned how to do the basic bumps and I learned how to lock up and I, I know how to transition into a wrist lock and a hammer lock and, you know, like real, real basic stuff. Um, but that was interesting. And I met some really interesting guys. And one of the people I trained with met in the first couple of weeks that I was training was Zach Sabre Jr. Oh, really? Who was, he must have been 14 and I would have been 19. So like, it was interesting to meet some guys who then, who then you, you know, years later. Um, so that was, that was interesting. But yeah, I left it after that. I did it for like six or eight weeks or so. And then moved i started university that september so i kind of it was a good it was a good excuse to stop something that i wasn't very good at uh and i didn't really think about working in wrestling again for for quite a while but i kind of fell into doing student radio at uni 
I, I, I had a couple of roommates who were doing a show and I'd never, I didn't go to university thinking, oh, I really want to work on the student radio station. But I just, yeah, I fell into it and ended up being like, sort of like the station manager or the head of production or something, I remember what the title was of, of, of the radio station there and was being a DJ on shows. I, I did a music show, I did a current affairs show. We did live DJing as like the warm up act for the big kind of night in our student union every week. So I learned how to be confident, I guess, behind a microphone. And that sort of transferred over to then what I, after, after university, when I thought, oh, what should I do now? I've got some spare time outside of my nine to five job. I wonder about wrestling again, maybe as a commentator, because that obviously works with the with the student radio stuff and then yeah I, I looked up some local promotions and and went from there contacted people and tried to get my foot in the door so what was that cold calling process like for you was there like any like a, like anxiety around it? it was like did you feel like super confident in your ability to like sell yourself to these smaller promotions at the beginning uh, british people aren't very good at selling ourselves <laughs> <laughs> we do this understated thing where like you know, you're, oh, I kind of, I think I'd be quite good at this. So would you like to maybe give me a tryout? No worries if not, but uh, that kind of, that's how, that's how we all write emails over here. It was, it was email. I wasn't having to like cold call okay. phone number or anything. So email makes it a little bit less daunting, but oh, for sure, I, I found a, a promotion that was running shows within an hour journey on public transport, asked them if they needed a commentator promoter got back to me and said no we don't but but we might in the next few months actually so why don't you start coming to shows you know get your face known so I went as a fan to these monthly shows that this promotion was doing in, in just kind of south London or, or Kent like the, the county just outside London for yeah maybe four months and then in that that was in like May of 2008 and then by September they were looking for someone I had an audition in a studio, you know, just just me and their color commentator screaming at the television, and 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 after that, they they gave me gave me a go, and I had my first first live show in September of oh wait. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious, like at the very beginning of you kind of getting into commentary, I think a lot of people that. Um, get into any kind of like public performance sort of thing they have people that inspire them to do that and at times they can you people like i'm included in this they can fall into like sort of the similar trappings of the people that inspire you to get into a certain uh, industry I, I i see it a lot with a lot of like stand-up comedians and that sort of thing um who were some of the inspirations for you whenever you were starting to get into commentary and did you notice yourself kind of sort of adopting some of those like speech patterns or like turns of phrase or anything like that and and into your like early commentary work at all yeah, Jim Ross was the main one because he was obviously the voice of WWF as it was then in that attitude era. And I still think he's, as, as is pretty much consensus among a lot of fans, I think he's probably the best play-by-play -play guy of all time. So there is a risk, I think, when there's one dominant voice that's been there for so long that that's the only place you take inspiration from. And then you can end up sounding, if you're not careful, like... A, a, just a cheap ripoff of 
of him. You'll be careful. I don't want to start saying like, oh, what a slobber knocker all the time. You know, I wouldn't want to say words that are that make sense for an Oklahoman guy in a cowboy hat, but don't make sense for a middle class white boy from suburban London. So, so it was a case of taking some of the good things from from Jim Ross's commentary, but but listening back, it's really important, I think, when you're a new commentator, by the way, for anyone who's interested in, in getting into it, that you listen back to your own stuff, as painful as it is, because you'll always be your own worst critic. But at least when you listen back to stuff, you can sometimes hear yourself being, oh, that's a, that's a bit too much of a direct JR ripoff or, or whatever. And then, and then try and broaden your horizon. So what I tried to do was listen to some other wrestling commentators, which wasn't too hard because... I had lots of WWF tapes, but also WCW. And again, by now the internet was sufficiently uh, good with video that you could find all sorts of stuff, but, but borrow from other sports as well. I'm a big football and soccer fan. So try and take some of the best bits from there because it does, it does overlap. It's a transferable skill. You know, what, what, how a good football commentator gets excited when someone scores a goal and how they change the tone of their voice and the rhythm and that kind of stuff is something you can you can translate over to wrestling and, and use for like a big spot a near fall or whatever in or, or, or the end of a finish or whatever in wrestling so so try and do that stuff and try and develop your own style so that you're inspired by some of your favorites but you're you're kind of your own unique voice as well Hmm. About how long did it take before you felt like you were like you had developed that unique voice for yourself? It was strange because quite a lot of the people who like the guys who auditioned me and, and the people who I was working with were saying very complimentary things very early about, oh, you're really good at this. You're a natural. And of course, when it's yourself, you'll never you never think that, you know, you sort of think when I listen back to myself, even now, when I listen back to myself, as I often think, Dave, that wasn't, that wasn't great. But there'll be, there'll be something that really bugs me. There'll be something, it'll be one thing maybe, like there'll be one spot that I blew the call on in a whole match and I'll end up thinking that the, the call for the whole match was terrible. So there's that kind of imposter syndrome that, that never quite goes away. But I think... Yeah, you just, you just, there's no one moment, but you just develop stuff over time. Like one of the things I did, you talked about a AAA and CMLL. I've done a, a lot of hours of, of both of those promotions, all of which was in post-production. I never went to Mexico City to do it. It was all sitting in a studio. And some of that stuff's great. I'm not knocking Mexican wrestling at all. I love some of the Lucha Libre stuff, but some of it really is filler. And you and we didn't have a choice. It was like a French distribution company who would send us the episodes already packaged. And then we had to just commentate whatever they sent us. So if they've picked something that's not great and where there's, but there's like 20 minutes of it and you, you're like, how on earth am I going to fill this airtime? You kind of learn how to fill that time and to sound excited about something and to, and to just almost, it's, it's almost like I'm saying, Learning to kind of talk nonsense is a skill. Mm. And that's because then you feel like you've got a safety net. You're like, if I, if I completely lose my train of thought midway through a match, well, I'll just do what I did when I was doing those matches that weren't very good. 
and just go back to some autopilot of talking, talking, talking until I get kind of back on the, the wagon, you know? So it, it, it's, yeah, it's just all these different things you do. You learn, you learn new skills from. Hmm. No, it's, it's interesting to like kind of hear like the concept, like put in like those terms in a way, because it speaks to, you know, commentary in or play by play, even in like, you know, other sports as well. You talked about the overlap between, you know, football and, um, and pro wrestling in terms of like presentation or like commentary, at least like I, whenever you speak to like the, the art of talking nonsense, like you say, the first thing that popped in my head was like listening to any play by play of baseball here in the States. Like, cause there's so much downtime and I love baseball, love it to death. Like I work for a sports website. I have to say that. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> like, I love baseball, but there's so much downtime that you get, to, I think you get to know commentators or, or announcers a lot more in that, in that dead space in a way, because like there's more opportunity to infuse your own personality there. There's more um, opportunities to kind of like parse out, exactly how you would speak to certain things and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't know. It's just interesting to, to hear like how all these different realms, even though they are separated, still like need some of the same elements pr- uh, to make them uh, conducive in a way. Yeah, right. I mean, I've done, as well as doing commentating, I've done some studio TV presenting. So Wrestle Talk, which I'm sure you know is obviously the magazine which I've done the article in but also has a very successful YouTube channel now but for a while in the UK it had a weekly it was the weekly half hour TV show on a Sunday night on on cable TV and I started doing a show once a month so like one half hour per month on one of those Sundays which was called British Wrestling Roundup where it was kind of a sort of a highlight show of whatever matches of British wrestling we've managed to get together that we could put on on the on the show that month and so I ended up doing quite a lot of short studio segments we had like two people on a, on a couch next to me discussing what we'd just seen and then I have to segue into the next match but each of these segments you do are only three minutes and so in a half hour show because obviously as you would want most of the stuff is is the actual action in the ring you're only on the show for five six minutes of the whole half hour and that I found that made it really difficult to I found it a lot harder to project any personality I think doing short bursts of tv hosting rather than like you say when you're when you're a commentator if you think about it the commentators are the the only ones in a wrestling show who are with the viewer throughout so in a three hour four hour pay-per-view the commentator is with you the whole time whereas the wrestlers come and go. And so I've, yeah, I've definitely found that it's, it's a lot easier for me to, I find that long form style much easier because like I can develop that rapport over the, over the three hours, whereas doing this kind of TV thing where you're sort of, yeah, short burst, short sound bites is, is a lot more difficult. No, I mean, anytime you put like, constrictions or, or restrictions rather on anything like that like it's it's forced you force yourself to kind of be a bit more streamlined and like that can produce some really great content as well but it, it serves a completely different purpose and you know they're both art forms in a way 
So yeah, like it's it's good to develop both of those elements there. Um, of course, while you were com while you were getting the commentary, you also started working with Fighting Spirit over in the UK as well. I believe serving as a a writer and an editor over there. Talk to me a little bit about how you got involved with with Fighting Spirit initially. Yeah, it's because Fighting Spirit magazine, which nowadays is incorporated with WrestleTalk, so Fighting Spirit itself doesn't doesn't exist now, but it was it used to have four pages a month dedicated to British wrestling. So I became like the UK news editor. There would be two pages of actual news stories, and then probably like an interview with with someone. Actually, we had yeah, we had a regular segment called One to Watch where there'd be like a one-page interview. And we had loads of top names on there, like Noam Dar, I remember specifically we did we did as a one to watch. This is in 2009 when he was like 16. And, and then he obviously went on to, to the big thing. So it was quite cool doing that. And then we'd have a, like a one-page show review. Um, it was, yeah, I was there, I think I was there a year and a half, two years, something like that. And it was it was really a good experience. And, and it helped, to be honest, it helped me to, get to know more people from within the UK scene as well. I was interviewing people. I was making sure that that there was a, a good mix of of promotions represented. So it was, yeah, it was a really good, good learning experience. And it kind of, it complemented uh, the commentating, I think, because as I say, it made me learn more about the industry in which I started to work. And so it made me more knowledgeable when I commentated. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was any like any discernible like skills or, or things that you could take and apply to commentary from working um, in print media as well. So it's I mean, it's good to hear that there was like some takeaway there, um, even though you only spent like a, a short time uh, with the magazine. Um, and, and you speak to the, the, the British wrestling scene at the time because like if you bring up Brit, Brit rest nowadays, like there's a litany of promotions throughout the UK, even and like even beyond the UK in that same area with like, you know, promotions running in Ireland, promotions running in, all throughout Europe. It seems like the past like five to six or seven years, there's been almost like a renaissance in European and specifically British pro wrestling. But what was the what was the scene like at the time whenever you were getting involved with Fighting Spirit and covering the industry um, as a whole? It's been really interesting for me because I actually had three years away from the industry. I say I taught I, I did start in 2008, but it's not it wouldn't be true that I've been going for 12 or 13 years because I had three years off in the middle. In 2011, I, I moved to Florida to do my master's degree and I was there for like two and a half years. So. I kind of left British wrestling in 2011. It was still pretty small. And to answer your question, in 2008-9, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for there to be 50, 100 fans at a show. Hmm. The production values in terms of having big screens and proper staging was, was uh, mixed. Some promotions were getting there, but the norm was still that it wasn't that great. There, it was it was true there were there were even by 2008 or 9 there were a lot of promotions arguably too many because a lot of them were not of high quality and the uk geographically is a very small place so i think even now we probably still have more wrestling promotions per square mile than probably anywhere else on earth i don't know if that's true but it, we must be we must be up there 
somewhere. And um, yeah, so it was really interesting to, to go away for three years and leave it as still a pretty low key industry. And then by the time I came back 2014, that's when I started doing stuff with WrestleTalk, it was, wow, things had really taken off. Like uh, Progress Wrestling had, had become a big thing down south and the ICW in Scotland, Rev Pro in London, various other, I'm not gonna, if I try and list everything, I'll miss some out, but, but it, was, it was night and day from what it had been in just three years. You know, because I was living over there, I hadn't, I hadn't really kept up with what was going on on the UK scene, kind of a little bit, because some of my friends were obviously still involved, but not really. And then to see what it became, it really did. It was like a just a rocket ship when it when it finally happened. This this boom period in in British wrestling, and and I was kind of lucky to get back involved right as it was sort of hitting its apex. Mm. Whenever you came back to to Britain um, post Florida and saw the 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 scene flourishing in the way that it was, like getting back into the scene, did you kind of like discover like a reason per se why the scene had blown up in the way that it had, or did you ever really learn any factors into that? I think in hindsight, it was probably always about to because the talent was there. And that, that was one of the things that was really frustrating in 2009-10 was seeing just how good it was, like the actual in-ring product. Not all of it, as I say, there were some promotions where there were you know, rosters or at least individual wrestlers who really shouldn't have been anywhere near a ring. But, but at the same time, we had the, again, like the Zack Sabre Juniors were, were, were coming through and, and uh, Dave Mastiff, Rampage Brown, and, and all those guys who were who are now either in NXT UK or in New Japan or, or who have had the success that they so richly deserved. Well, we all knew about them 12 years ago and they were really good then. And they've obviously got better and better and better. So I, I think it probably just needed someone to, or multiple promotions to really take the bull by the horns in terms of production values, in terms of, Things like, like making bold decisions, that it, it was pretty uncommon uh, in sort of 2009-10 for anyone to try and run in London hmm. because London has such a, well, in normal times, not right now, but has a plethora of, of entertainment options for everyone who lives there. And so, it, and, and venues are expensive, like everything is expensive in London. So, so it was considered kind of high risk, to, certainly in central London. To, to run shows and, and for, for Progress and RevPro and, and others to do that regularly, that was new when I came back and it was very welcome for me because I'm a Londoner or from near London. So, so that, was, that was different. But yeah, I think it was probably when I left just a, probably getting to be inevitable that it was about to go. Although I, didn't, I, I can't claim I saw that at the time. I, it wasn't like when I left for Florida in 2011, I thought it wasn't like, oh, damn, I'm just leaving as it's about to explode. I didn't predict it or anything like that. But yeah, hindsight being 2020, it was it was probably probably going to happen. Mm. No, like it's just it was just, it's just been amazing to watch because like it, it felt so organic as it as it continued growing. And now obviously it's the it's the beast that it is, you know, COVID withstanding. Um, but I don't know. It's just, it's just 
so interesting to see not just the the growth but the dichotomy of growth as well that we've seen in the past decade because like you have comp like obviously like you have the heavy hitters like you're talking about like pro progress icw and rev pro but like even companies that are starting to kind of push more the inclusion route like riptide um is one that that i always kind of come back to as well and then of course the rise of pro wrestling eve over there as well um do you think that um that do you feel like that was kind of the, that the British scene was kind of on the forefront of that in a way um, when looking at, at other regions uh, for pro wrestling, like including the States as well? Yeah. I mean, from I'm obviously more familiar with the UK scene, independent scene than, than the U S but my experience was at, at that time in the mid 2010s, that the UK was leading the way really in the, the independent scene worldwide. I think it was, very much the case that yeah the british promotions were doing everything and it, and it was yeah like pro wrestling eve you talked about which is incredibly innovative and bold in, in being a women's only promotion that that wasn't that for all the promotions we did have in in the uk there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people certainly no one or not not very many high profile people doing that i know waw in, in norris the knight family they they sometimes run all women shows but there weren't very many so that was that was bold, and then what what we ended up doing with what culture pro wrestling was, I think, innovative and and again probably inevitable given how creative and and sort of experimental the UK scene was, that to try and build a wrestling promotion like what culture did was probably always going to come from the UK if it was going to come from anywhere the independent scene at that time to build a wrestling promotion that was that tried to bring together some already very successful YouTubers with the very talented roster of wrestlers that were on the UK independent scene and mix them together. So you've got people like Adam Pompier, Adam Pacitti, Jack LaJobba, guys becoming part of the show as authority figures or, or whatever. So they bring in that kind of YouTube crowd. And then you've got, hopefully you've got British wrestling fans of whom there were increasing numbers as well coming together to, to bring it, to build a promotion. That is why like, what culture was, like, WCPW was able to have explosive growth in the second half of, of 2016. So they launched in, in June, 2016. I started with them in August and by October they're running. I'll never forget the day we ran, we ran a, a big ice rink type arena in, in Manchester, two and a half thousand people, which is huge for British wrestling. And there were, Progress and, and ICW would sign to do that, but for a promotion to of being able to do that four months into their existence was insane. And we did a we did like a fan festival, you know, like a signing, autograph signing thing in the afternoon. And we had that that was the weekend. We had Jim Ross there, although he wasn't at that show. But we had Kurt Angle was there, Cody Rhodes was there, Bret Hart was there, various big big names were were all there. And you know what? The biggest Cues, the biggest lines for autographs were for the Adams, for Blompier and Pachiti, and for Jack Lajoba. And it just shows you how much of a kind of celebrity machine, if you like, YouTube had become. And I don't think anyone else had utilized that on the same level, at least, as what culture did at that time. And that's why they, they built an audience so quickly. It was like really, really exciting to be 
part to be kind of strapped to that rocket ship as it as it went up no i mean like the just watching that that company grow as quickly as it did like you said like it was bewildering to see because like you know i had been in tune with like the what culture crew for a little while on youtube like you said like so many other people before the they launched and when they announced that they were launching a promotion i was like this feels so like odd like i didn't want to feel i didn't feel like i doubted the the endeavor but it was just like it like you said it had never really been done before even like linking um a pro wrestling promotion to, you know, I wouldn't say what, what culture necessarily is, is it like journalism outlet, but like a, a critique outlet, you know, like in that, in the way that they are um, and, and the content yeah. that they produce, like, it's just, it's never really been done in that way. And it was just amazing to see how far they went in such a short amount of time. Like you said, like, I would never have thought that they would have had that kind of rise in the way that it did. Yeah. Yeah, I, mem I remember at the time, a lot of people were skeptical. And as I say, I wasn't, I wasn't on there from the very beginning. So for the first couple of months of it, I was looking from the outside in. And, and I, I will say on that one, I, I did predict it. Like, I, there were a lot of people saying, like, oh, this, what? This won't work. Why would some YouTubers start a, a wrestling promotion? Unlike in 2011, where I didn't predict the, you know, the explosion of the UK scene. I, I did think my immediate reaction when I heard they were going to launch a, a promotion was because I was a fan of theirs as well. I was watching their the top 10 lists and all that kind of stuff. I, my reaction was that sounds potentially brilliant because of, because of that, because of that kind of star power. They were, I mean, they were getting six figures on most of their, most of their videos at that point, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of, of views. And so I, it did strike me at the time that that was, a very good platform from which to try and launch a, a promotion. I, I certainly didn't predict it would grow with the speed it did. I wouldn't have told you, oh, by October they'll be running a two and a half thousand seater arena. But um, but I did I I did think it was it was smart and it could go quite far. No, I mean it definitely proved that as well. Like obviously, like you know, ultimately it, it did you know fall. Uh, but like there were there were amazing moments in there beforehand you know um some of the the better like uh Walter matches that i've seen happen at wcpw um introduced a lot of people to some awesome talent probably some of the best uh pox stuff outside of um you know some of his pwg and AEW work that, that we've seen coming out of there um I'm curious, like, what were some of your like better memories of, of uh, Defiant and, and WC, WCPW? You know, being able to call so much of the action there. Yeah, I always say I'm I'm the luckiest man in the building because I get the best seat. But I get I get to sit <laughs> depending on how the arena is configured. But quite often I get to sit ringside. So yeah, I was there for all kinds of guys coming through. I talked about Cody and Kurt Angle and. Had uh, Alberto Del Rio or Alberto El Patron, who whatever's going on with, with him in his private life is certainly an excellent wrestler. Yeah. Uh, we had, you know, I'm trying to think, obviously, we had all the guys when we did the Pro Wrestling World Cup in 2017, this big 64 man thing. So we had Ricochet and, and Keith Lee and Will Ospreay and just, oh, Rey Mysterio was, was in that. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I forget that. So, 
So there was all kinds of guys. Oh, we had we had Matt Hardy come through, Bubba Ray. Uh, that was yeah, that was crazy. Um, Bubba Ray, I I hadn't. I, it, it's kind of crazy sometimes backstage before a show. I think we were late getting there for the show. You know, the car I was in was late getting there because of traffic. So I hadn't had a chance to like do what you're supposed to do, the etiquette backstage at a wrestling show to go and introduce yourself to everyone, particularly if there's like a veteran. And so I hadn't seen him and I was out commentating and he, he comes out and he's a big dude. Like he's a big intimidating figure. And he, he walks out and he makes a beeline for the commentary desk and grabs me by the, like the sort of my, my suit jacket and like hurls me away from my chair so he can like, cause he was being a heel. So he could stand on the chair and like, you know, pose for the crowd and everything. And I was like, I was thinking, was that, was that like a, you didn't introduce yourself kind of, kind of message. But I think afterwards I was like, oh, hey man, I'm sorry I didn't introduce myself before on Dave, I'm play by play commentator. He was like, oh, hey dude, nice to meet you. He was like, he was great. So, so <laughs> kind of like, oh my God, there's, yeah, you have all these things going around about whether you've made some horrible faux pas with some like wrestling legend who's come to, come to visit. But no, there were loads of those, loads of those guys came through. Drew McIntyre, or Drew Galloway as we called him, was, was our champion for quite a while. Joseph Connors was our champion for a while in, in what culture as well. And people, people um, I think maybe forget that because he's, he's now, he's now making a name for himself in NXT UK, but he was a really good heel kind of deranged champion for us. So there were, and Gabriel Kidd, who I like to think is a, a homegrown in, in, in what culture, because he was, he was 19 when, we started and he went on this losing streak of, I don't know, 20, I can't remember how many matches it was. And then of all people to, to beat when he finished his losing streak, he did it by pinning Cody. So it was, it was this crazy reaction when that happened. So yeah, there were like, there were hundreds of, of memories from, from that. What culture in the end ran from 2016 to 2019. So there was almost three years of it. And it was, it was, quite a ride. What was it like for you whenever news came down that, that they were um, shuttering the company? Well, we, it was, by then it was defiant mm -hmm. and things had, so, so to start with, they obviously had, they, they spent a lot of money bringing in a lot of imports and I'm not privy to what the discussions were for why things changed or why it stopped being associated with the what culture brand and became defiant. But what was clear is, they were still bringing in some imports, some really good guys from you know, Europe, a couple from the US, but clearly they'd made a decision that it needed to be more sustainable in terms of the outlay versus the income. And so uh, that was what they tried to do. And I think, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know at what point they decided it wasn't financially viable, but we weren't. I remember we weren't told. They didn't tell us on that the last show that we did. I think it was called "Built to Destroy." It was in it was in June of 2019. They they told us we knew in advance that we were going to go into what they said was like a three or four month downtime, you know, like a off off season if you like, and they were going to come back in October. And I remember all of us in the locker room being kind of skeptical. 
because it's like, oh man, if the company needs downtime, then they weren't doing it because I know a lot of people talk about how WWE should have downtime so the wrestlers can recover. It wasn't about that. It was like, we need downtime while we figure out how we're going to reconfigure the company to make it profitable. And the reaction, I think, certainly mine, and I think most people's reaction backstage was, oh, that's not great because when people say, oh, yeah, we're going to take some downtime, well, the risk is that you never come back, you never return. And they did this thing where after the after the main event of that last show, they 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 put together this four minute or four or five minute like video package of all the highlights of, of WCPW and Defiant, and they put that out. And I knew that was going to happen. And they told us that it was it was they wanted the fans to think that that it wasn't coming back, and that's why there was a tribute, even though we wouldn't say that outright. That that would be the that would be the logic and then therefore when they announced their big return in october it would be oh my god we thought they were done and they're and they're back so that's what we were told as well um, i've got i don't know whether that was always the plan or whether they were just try, trying to let us down gently or whatever but yeah i mean a few weeks after that i got the not entirely unexpected call where i was told that yeah we're going to announce tomorrow that that we're that we're done and mm. it was it was sad because it was like I say those three years were among my favorite memories in wrestling I'll always be grateful for the opportunity I'll always cherish what what I got to do with that time but you know that's the independent wrestling scene it, it promotions come and go unfortunately and and it, it had its time it shone brightly and shone for a, a short period of time and then burned out but it was it was great while it lasted mm. Is there another company that you've worked with since then that's kind of like helped fill that that gap for you or kind of giving you the same feelings? Um, <laughs> like from a, just from a, a booking's perspective, like they, what Cultural Defiant was, they had this the weekly show, right? They had Loaded, so it, which was a weekly YouTube show. And so that meant I had, I got quite a lot of bookings from it because it was, it was running, we were, we are, mostly we were doing like a pay-per-view once a month and then maybe the following day we would do tapings so that we had like four weeks worth of of tv in the bag yeah so do like two days two consecutive days once a month but that was that was really cool and then obviously to lose that was 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 a real it was a blow but I, you know i've been very uh, very fortunate that lots of other promotions have but they're trusting me to be their their play-by-play -play commentator. So I like I, I I do I've done for a long time. I've done new generation wrestling in the UK, and I um, a couple of others kind of started in 2019, kind of around the time just before Defiant disappeared. So uh, WrestleGate Pro and Frontline, which was started by Will Osprey. So I've been doing stuff with them. And then yeah, I've been expanding out into the into Europe. And actually, it was the Pro Wrestling World Cup with What Culture that that helped me to do that because the guys at GWF in in Berlin, they heard me commentate on the German qualifying event, which was done in in collaboration with them for the Pro Wrestling World Cup. And then when they decided that they wanted to add British commentary to each of their monthly shows, I was the guy they they contacted and I'm really glad they did because they're, they're just, they're a wonderful group of people. 
at GWF. I'm so happy that I'm part of, of that because they are just such such great guys. They, they most of the time I do that commentary afterwards in London, but they have sometimes I go there live. If, if it's a big show, particularly, they might want to stream it live in English rather than just put it out later in English. So then they have me in Berlin, and they, they are so hospitable, and 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 they are really really good in terms of bringing talent through as well. Same is true of HCW Hungarian Championship Wrestling, who I who I worked for. Um, I, this, this, there's this real kind of factory of talent coming through from Germany and and, and Hungary and sort of Central. And other parts of Europe, Spain, you know, A Kid has come through Spain, Carlos Romo, um, lots of lots of that kind of thing. So the UK has led the way, but in Europe, in European terms at least, but the the European scene is catching up with the UK scene in terms of being a really good place to go. So I'm I'm lucky that I uh, I kind of I feel like I got in into commentating on the mainland European stuff early because I think they might be the next big boom and, and so it's good to it feels good that I'm already kind of knowledgeable about about some of the talent over there because I think they're going to be huge. All right, lads, ladies, and babies, thank you so much for tuning in to LGBT in the Ring. Uh, we'll get right back into the thick of things, but I do want to take a pause real quick and say thank you to some amazing people that make this show as rad as it is. Starting off with Daniel Quasar, the Progress Pride Black designed by Daniel Quasar is a product of Progress Initiative. You can find out more at quasar.digital. A big thank you to Sarah in the Safe Word for the show's theme song, Formula 666, off the album Red Hot and Holy. You can find them on Twitter at STSW Band, and you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp at sarahinthesafeword.bandcamp.com. Um, check out independentwrestling.tv for the best in current and classic independent pro wrestling, including live events from top independent promotions worldwide. Uh, you can use our promo code LGBTRingPod or visit tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT and get a five-day free trial and peruse their entire library uh, over there at independentwrestling.tv. Once again, promo code LGBTRingPod or go to tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT get five days free check out that service uh, you can follow the show on twitter at lgbt ring pod you can follow me on twitter at wonderboy otm and if you're into video games definitely check out my video game news show the mr video game super show i co-host that with uh, twitch streamers slacker kite and lady Merwin every monday at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific over on twitch.tv slash dead sun entertainment uh, it's your weekly roundup of gaming news, uh, and it's always a blast. So once again, check that out every Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, over at twitch.tv slash deadsunentertainment. Sun like the star. We'll be right back with more LGBT in the ring. GWF is one that, that stands out to me because, like, you know, it had been on my radar for a little bit, but then I end up interviewing James O'Leary, uh, who ring announces there periodically and like that 
I don't know. It was like interesting to hear, like speak to someone else who's in the LGBTQ community that was involved in, in pro wrestling over there that I didn't know that he was, I was speaking to him about esports. I didn't know that he was involved in pro wrestling at first. So like to see, like hear his experience with GWF and then to hear yours as well, you know, granted, like you, I don't know how, how many people you were out to like at the time when, when you were working with GWF, but like, you know, seeing them embrace LGBTQ um, identities into their into their product in the way that they have is like been really awesome to see. Um, and then, like you say, speaking to all these other regions, like I would never have really thought outside of like I, I would never really have thought that Hungary would have as strong of a of a scene as it does. And, I, and granted, I am just very barely on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to that. Um, in terms of looking into it, but it's just really interesting to hear like all these different places that are popping up, like sort of establishing themselves um, in the way that they are. Yeah, I mean, Germany, of course, has WXW as well, which is is probably the most well-known GWF. I think it's fair to say GWF is probably the the second most well-known sec second, and, and it's GWF that has kind of runs Berlin, like WXW doesn't really, I, I don't really know what agreement they have, or I don't, I'm not involved in the, the politics of it, but, um, but certainly the German scene, I guess, if you had to pick what's been the second healthiest European scene behind England or Britain, you would, you would probably say Germany over the past few years, but, but yeah, the fact that that's extending into other places, uh, there's some good French guys coming through, Senza Volto, who's been becoming a real big star on the indie scene in the last few years. He's great. I've already talked about the Spanish guys. So there's, there is, there does seem to be quite the, yeah, quite that build up. And, and <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty eager to predict it this time because I missed it in England. And so, <laughs> so I'm like, I want to be the guy who said, oh yeah, I was on an interview in, uh, in 2021 and said this was coming. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, we have it documented, so it will last. <laughs> um, I'm curious, though, to like talk a little bit more about about Hungary because, like, obviously, the past couple of years politically in Hungary, we've seen a lot of turns towards anti-LGBTQ, anti, specifically anti-trans legislation there, like criminalizing it, um, the, uh, criminalizing identities in the way that they are. Um, now that that you are out. Um, publicly and even before that whenever you you, I mean, you knew who how you identified what is what was that experience like for you to work with a company based out of Hungary knowing the kind of like political attitudes that are starting to to swarm there maybe not throughout the country but definitely from the the lead the leaders there um it, it didn't really I, I'm, I'm aware because I, I'm kind of interested in politics but my uh, bachelor's degree and my master's degree are both in political science so I, I do keep abreast of what's going on in, in politics but it's it would be a bit like I mean I wasn't a big Donald Trump fan as I'm sure many people weren't and and but I wouldn't you know I, I don't think that I don't think that has anything to do with the US indie scene you know I don't, I don't feel like oh I don't I wouldn't tar an, a country with the brush you know with that brush because there's a far-right movement going on in in their country and and HCW have been uh, incredibly welcoming to me. They, obviously, they they were among the people who only found out about my, my sexuality recently in the, the article I did in WrestleTalk magazine, as, as were the GWF guys. But 
but the wrestling industry, the wrestling industry, and particularly the independent scene, I, I've found, and I don't want to speak for anyone else because you know, my experience might be different to other people's, but it, it's very progressive. It's very, well, nowadays, it's very progressive, very welcoming. And I didn't for a moment have any concerns that anyone in Hungary or Germany or anywhere in the UK would, would within the wrestling industry would, would see it, me being open about myself, I didn't think anyone would see that as a, I didn't think anyone important would see that as being a negative and, and they haven't. Well, that's, that's awesome to hear. It's awesome to hear that, 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 that those attitudes are kind of prevalent throughout. And I think this is a good time to kind of get into your article as well, you know, because obviously you came out publicly like just a little less than two weeks ago at this point when when the the issue of Russell Talk magazine hit hit newsstands and, and digitally worldwide there. Talk to me a little bit about the process of like deciding that this was the moment that you wanted to to make that statement for yourself in, in this piece. Well to start with I'd only started writing for WrestleTalk again because I hadn't really done any written wrestling journalism since I did Fighting Spirit which ended in 2011 so I hadn't done much and then I probably wouldn't have done much actually if it wasn't for the pandemic mm. but I haven't had any shows to commentate uh, the guys at WrestleTalk magazine were very kind and, and asked me if I'd like to do some articles for them so since uh, I don't know I guess September I've been writing an article a month or sometimes more than that for them and if I'm going to write articles about wrestling I want it to be thought-provoking I want it to get into topics that are of interest or importantly you know, I did a, a, a piece a couple of months ago about about unionization and, and, and I've done one in the build-up to the American election I did one about the history of like politics in wrestling, wrestling and how they've interacted so I'm trying to do things that I hope are not being covered in other wrestling media certainly in like written media um and i thought you know what it would be a, i think it would be really interesting to do one about the history of lgbtq representation in wrestling they had we we discussed me and the the editor we discussed a few months ago about me maybe doing after i've done the one about politics because we we're trying to be current you know and, and reflect what's going on in the world talked about doing one about the history of racism in wrestling because of uh, Black Lives Matter was was obviously in the news and all that kind of stuff. But I just, I wasn't, I didn't really want to do that because I don't feel like it's my story to tell. Like if, if, I, if I'm going to write an article about how terrible it was, how the nation of domination was portrayed in 1997, you know, or whatever, or uh, how awful it is that it only that it took till 1992 to have a black world champion in Ron Simmons or, or whatever, then it doesn't feel very authentic because the truth is at the age of 13, 14, whatever I was, I wasn't really thinking about racism because I'm a privileged white guy. So there was, that wasn't, it didn't affect me. Like, um, and so it's not that it's not an important story, but it's, I feel like it needs to be told by, by someone with a more interesting perspective on it. Whereas obviously the LGBTQ stuff, given that I'm gay myself, was something that I thought I could talk about a bit more authentically. But the only way I could do that was if I explained at the outset of the article 
that I'm a gay man and therefore this is my perspective on it. So I, it, it was helpful for me personally because that kind of coming out process of, of taking that, I, I guess it's the final step for me was being public about it. Uh, that was something that I kind of had on my to-do list for <laughs> quite a few years. But it, to be honest, it, it, I've been out to my family and, and most of my close friends, but not all, for about 12 years. Mm. Um, and so that whole sort of telling the rest of people, like there were a few close friends who I hadn't told, not because I um, didn't think that they would react well or anything, but just because I find it's like a, I do find it a little bit of a when do you bring it up kind of conversation you know so it, it's not as simple as oh just tell them it's like when when do you do it so I hadn't told everyone but for the most part a few apart from a few close friends it was it was like the rest of my Facebook friends you know everyone's got like everyone who's been on Facebook for enough time has got like a thousand Facebook friends right and there'll be that kind of wider group of friends who who didn't know and then I wasn't out other than to a few of my closest friends in wrestling. So those two things, like coming out to that wider group of friends and coming out to, to the wrestling community were sort of the, I, I felt like, oh, that's right. I've done 90% of coming out because I've done all the hard part, you know, telling your family and friends, that's the really scary part, right? Um, so all that other kind of 10% I still need to do, well, well, I'll do it when I get around to it. I, for a, a long time, I didn't think it was that important. And then when I did it, you know, I chose to finally do it in, in this article, uh, which, which, as I say, was released, uh, I guess, you know, a week or two ago. And, and the reaction of, of just random strangers was so overwhelmingly lovely that it was, it was really kind of life-affirming. I, I also had a lot of, like, private messages from, from some of some really... You know, great high-profile wrestlers who I've worked with in the past who didn't need to take the time anymore. You know, they're big successes now. So I won't name them because they were private messages, but guys from WWE and New Japan and all, all over took time to, to message me about it and, you know, universally welcoming and, and, and great. And it just made me feel like, man, I'm, I'm fortunate to work. I, I, I'm a lucky man to work in the industry I do. Um, but... As I say in the article, that wouldn't have always been the case. Like, and so I hope the article is mostly positive because it's it's giving what I think is a mostly optimistic outlook about where the industry is going in terms of acceptance and, and representation. But I also think I also thought it was important to be to not pull any punches with talking about where we've been as an industry and some of the low points. Uh, through the years so that's what I tried to do no and and that's really the the process of coming to that optim that that optimistic outlook I think is like being able to look back on the flaws and the faults of of an industry that has really worked to other LGBTQ identities along with multiple other marginalized communities um, throughout its history really up until recent years you know, there's a reason why, like, that you were toying with the idea of speaking to the, like, racism in, in the history of pro wrestling before you landed on doing the LGBTQ article was because, like, these things are present. And a lot of people don't necessarily like to 
really face those things head on and learn why they persisted and why um, and and how to overcome those things and to keep them from happening again. Same way with LGBTQ representation. You know, a lot of what you what you write about in the article is focused. Um, it's very WWE heavy, obviously, because like they are the number one company in the world. Um, but at the same time, like if the number one company in the world is making it easy for people to, you know, see LGBTQ identities as something other than, you know, the the classical quote unquote definition of of like normal human or anything like that, then you know that those attitudes proliferate throughout, and and there's a real humanizing. Uh, element to being able to see other communities as the same way that you see yourself um was and speaking to some of those like faults that that you did reflect on in the articles i i'm with you i think the article does strike an optimistic tone overall but you know obviously we talk about uh gorgeous george in, in back in the 40s and the 50s and then you move into the billy and chuck stuff is probably the one thing that stands out the most to me um, personally, because like that was also a very formative time for me. I was in like like 2002, like I was in high school around that time period. And, you know, Billy and Chuck was really like Goldust was the formative thing for me, I think, just because, you know, everybody has that awakening. Goldust was my awakening. And Billy and Chuck was the one time where like the company seemed like they were going to lean into something that could actually have made a serious statement about something. Um, and then, of course, you know, you speaking on on Russell Talk uh, TV last week, I think it was very a very uh, sentient point when I was listening to that interview that you did, where you speak to like, well, maybe I think a lot of people were naive to expect WWE yes. to make that to make that statement in the way that they did, because obviously Billy and Chuck had the commitment ceremony, but at the same time, you had the hot lesbian action stuff happening over on Raw, and then of course the involvement with glad where everything got subverted there um and really upset glad for a number of years before they got back on board with uh, working with wwe what out of the moments that you speak to in the article were there any that stood out to you personally as like 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 spotlights that that really speak to things that needed to be addressed to make pro wrestling better for lgbtq people yeah i'm a, I'm a, a bit like you i think gold dust was was a bit uh, too early for me to to feel it in a heart to feel that it was harmful, right? Because I was so I was uh, when when Goldust came in like '96, right? So I was 13, um, and back then I wouldn't have had any sort of um, like inclination that I was or inkling that I was gay, kind of kind of ridiculously in hindsight because. I'm sure I was starting to have the thoughts and feelings, but like it, one of the things I say in the article and I've, I said on, on WrestleTalk last week is that one of the problems I have when, when with, with the way LGBTQ characters were presented, not just in wrestling, but throughout the entertainment industry at that time, you know, in the 80s, 90s, in, into the 2000s, was that it's not that there's a problem with the Goldust character per se, or, or even Billy and Chuck per se, like, this, having this kind of goofy like thing where there's this sort of comedy routine every week with two guys who uh, are tag teaming together and are gay but don't realize they're gay like okay like fine that's not 
it's not on its own necessarily that insulting, but it, it's like the, the problem is that there were no positive characters. There's no like, there's no variation. There's no uh, nothing beyond things that were done for like ridicule and, and, and like you said, for, for heel heat, you know? Um, and so I, I, I don't really remember how I was affected by gold dust other than probably thinking it probably kind of compounded that sort of gay equals weird uh, thing that was sort of instilled in a, in a, a lot of us kind of growing up. Yeah. And Chuck's interesting because it was but like by then 2002, uh, yeah, I was 19 and it was, I was really struggling then with sexuality. So I was at the point where because, because there were none of those like, positive role models, I guess, or, or not even positive, but because there were no variation in, in role models. So there was no one like me who was gay on TV, not just in wrestling, but on TV, right? And so the only kind of gay characters you ever saw on TV, like I say, were the, were the overtly effeminate ones or the whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it, it wasn't who I was. And so in my head, like, I couldn't be gay because being gay meant being that sort of um, personality. And, and I, I don't think I, even then, I don't think I was like, uh, prejudiced against that kind of person, but it wasn't who I was. And so I thought, well, you, you managed to persuade yourself, regardless of what feelings you're Having, and the fact that you're having feelings about the same sex rather than the opposite sex, you manage to persuade yourself that that can't mean I'm gay because this is what a gay person looks like and I'm not that. Uh, and so that really led to a lot of confusion for me. And so I'm still in, the, in 2002, I'm still in that process of uh, figuring that out. And I haven't, it took me till like 2004, kind of when I was at 21 to figure it out just internally that I was, and to come to it, to accept to myself that I was gay. And so in 2002, I was, from what I remember, I was probably, I think I was probably avoiding even watching Billy and Chuck on TV because I would have been like, I was in that phase sort of where I was like, oh my God, what if I'm gay? And, and so it would have been like anything that was sort of hinting at an LGBTQ theme in those days, I wouldn't have liked. Um, but then to see the, I don't know if I even watched it at the time. No, I did watch it. I think I did watch it. But but the when they finally did the kind of the uh, conclusion of that angle at the, the commitment ceremony where they finally went, oh God, no, we're not gay, we're straight. Like that just kind of compounds the whole being gay equals bad thing at what was a very vulnerable Sort of impressionable time for me so yeah that wasn't I mean it wasn't healthy and I do think that's one of the one of the low points and the same the other thing I talk about from 2002 in the article is that there was a ring of honor launch that year and their first show was was included a really really homophobic segment in their very first show and, and again that happens at a time when I'm figuring things out and I'm sure other people of my age at that time who were in a similar situation were doing the same and so I guess what I'm saying is, and one of the reasons I think it's important to have been open about myself in writing the article is so that I can say in the article, like, this stuff was damaging. 
like it, it's not just uh, harmless entertainment and if you don't like that segment well never mind because you might like the segment that's coming next like it has an effect on people uh, who are who are at a, a vulnerable time in their lives and so i'm i'm pleased that i hope for the most part the industry nowadays has moved past that so if someone was 18 or 19 you know like i was at the time now and was a wrestling fan that i hope they would be less likely to have to witness that kind of storyline, that kind of angle, and to be sort of negatively impacted by it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm right there with you in, in that same way. I think like specifically looking at the commitment ceremony itself, like there's so many different images within media over over the years that you know um, definitely compound these these feelings, these um, these feelings of like self hatred or, or like this this level of uncomfort with or discomfort rather with trying to like understand yourself and, and it can really like undo a lot of good work even whenever like the the moment in that commitment ceremony that i always go back to is like striking to me is that like once billy and chucks like say they're not gay and this is all for a publicity stunt billy gun gets on the mic and says it like it, we don't have a problem with gay people and then the crowd erupts in cheers whenever he says that it almost feels like like i'm sure that there's probably some truth to that statement maybe from from billy gun i don't know billy gun personally um but it's just interesting to see like that moment around every with everything else around it almost felt like we're trying to make good on what we were trying to do and diffuse the situation and so many people focus on that people like straight people that i speak to that have watched that focus on that moment as like a, almost assuaging of the issue that the entire thing was uh causing to to people that were you know still in the closet people trying to understand themselves in the way that that you and so many other were um what does it make you feel like whenever you see um, companies or, or moments like that, rather, where they they try and like put like a kernel of like or a crumb of like equality or something or like something to kind of like take the the air out of what clearly comes across as a, a fairly homophobic thing. Like, how did I, it sounds like that didn't even really like resonate with you at all? Um, in the, in that. No, I mean I think it, it's it's pain, you know that. Says, oh, we don't have a problem with gay people is kind of like, I mean, by 2002, I guess there was a sufficient level of acceptance across society that it was hard to be openly homophobic in an angle, although, as I say, Ring of Honor managed to in the same year, but like, but um, I, I think it's like, by 2002, I think that was probably a caveat they felt like they had to throw in. Like, it's not that we're saying gay people are bad, but but at the same time, they're essentially saying, as they had, as pro wrestling had done throughout history, that that you cannot be a gay character and be babyface. So much like I said in the article that that Goldust, when he wanted to turn from being a heel to a babyface, had to first make clear that he was straight, and that, oh no, Marlene is my wife. Like that, that in order to 
in order for WWF to feel like uh, that fans would accept him as a babyface, it had to be made clear that he was straight when it had previously been implied that he was gay. And the same was true with Billy and Chuck, even several years after Goldust, it was like, well, obviously the innuendo with those two characters is that they're gay, the very heavy innuendo by the time they were doing the, the commitment ceremony, but also fans were starting to cheer for them. So that whole ceremony also worked, also acted as a babyface turn for them. After that, they, they, well, very soon after that, Chuck got injured and they ended up breaking up. But the idea I, I'm pretty sure was to turn them face. But to do that, it was felt, rightly or wrongly, by those booking WWF at the time that it had to, that they had to make clear in that angle that they were straight. And they, they WWF was not, or WWE, it was by then, I guess, was not feeling that they were comfortable pulling the trigger on a, on a positive babyface LGBTQ tag team. Uh, and that unfortunate that it that that they didn't feel like they could take that step at that time i like to think that that they would be able to now but um but they certainly weren't 19 years ago no um i do want to talk more about some of the more positive elements of the article as well but i i do want to touch on this roh um uh match that you, that you write about from the very first match in roh history back in 2002 because like this was something that like even like me watching as much wrestling as I have I did not know about this match until I read it in your article I had never obviously like ROH has scrubbed it from their history for the most part I mean it's very hard to find if you can find it on the internet but um it's such a probably the most egregious homo egregiously homophobic angle that I've ever heard of in pro wrestling um and obviously, like I, I, we want people to, to go and read the article for themselves, but could you give just a little taste of exactly what 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 uh, made this first match in Ring of Honor history so uh, gross, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean, I said earlier that the the things were always like elsewhere, and yeah, you're right. The article is quite WWF heavy, but that, of course, partly that's because that's what I grew up watching. Um, but certainly in WWF, it was there was never. It never went as far as like these guys are gay, therefore they should be beaten up, and you should cheer for them being beaten up. But you know they were never. It was never like that. I'm not sure they ever even felt like that anyway. But they they were prepared to put out heel characters who were implied to be gay because it would draw heat. But but in the Ring of Honor thing, I think, was so bad because it it did go that extra mile, and you had so what happens is a a, a a uh, very obviously stereotypically gay tag team comes out called the Christopher Street Connection. They come to the ring and they start like, I think they, if I'm trying to remember from, I think they even start like trying to kiss male members of the audience as they, as they make their way down to the ring and that's presented as horrendous. And the, the commentators start saying, well, oh, that's gross. I wish they would do it in the parking lot so we didn't have to see it. And then, and then the entire crowd starts that they they come out and cut a what's intended to be a heel promo where they say you know they say oh well we're going to turn ring of honor into a ring of homosexuals or something and then i think they start making out and the crowd uh, is obviously designed for the crowd to boo them and the crowd happily obliged and start chanting the f word at them um 
and one of the, as a commentator, one of the things I find most upsetting about it is that I always think like part of me kind of thinks with wrestling like it it's not necessarily out of bounds to present a heel character who is homophobic or racist or misogynistic, much like it isn't out of bounds to present a character like that in a movie. But what makes it so horrendous in this case is that the play-by-play -play commentator, the good guy commentator, who is kind of the, which is what I do now, and that's the, the sort of the voice of the viewer, right? That's what we're, that's what the broadcast is telling you to, who to cheer and, and who to boo. Even the good guy is joining in with this idea that, that these guys should be beaten up essentially because of their sexuality. And, and I remember seeing it in, I don't think I saw it in 2002. I certainly didn't see it like as it happened, but I caught it on like a VHS a year or two later while I was still um, struggling with, with my own situation. And even then, I, I remember thinking, and by then I'd been a wrestling fan for a long time, well over a decade by then, I remember thinking, this is the worst thing I've seen in wrestling, because it was so vicious, and it was so, it was essentially, it, it felt like it was inciting violence against gay people. It felt like a certain portion of the audience who might be impressionable would watch that and think, yeah, let's go beat up some gay guys you know it was that bad and and it was uh again not, no reflection necessarily on ring of honor now because this is two decades later and it's under different management and i'm not, not holding a grudge against modern day ring of honor or anything like that but but um it, yeah it was really bad yeah um do you feel like that that the company like not necessarily like casting judgment on modern day ring of honor but do you feel like ring of honor as a company accurately has accurately reflected on that moment and seen the error that was in that moment i mean i don't follow ring of honor super closely mm. I, but i don't i'm i don't think i wouldn't want to single them out now as being bad or anything you know i think yeah. they're, they're no worse than any of the other you know major uh, major companies now they are just like the whole industry are, are headed the right way so as i say it's not like a when I talk about that that in the article, that that incident, I don't mean it as like a witch hunt against Ring of Honor as a whole, like over their entire twenty year history. But it is, it was, it, it it's an important moment, I guess, in Ring of Honor history because it's the the very first segment of their very first show, and it was to this day, I think, the worst the worst thing I've seen in wrestling. And I've seen the Katie Vick segment, <laughs> also. like God. it was be bad. God, there's just a there's a murderous row of that of, of bad moments, but yeah, I that was I, that. God. that was 2002 as well. Yep, that was. Can we just like, well, we don't need to forget 2002 because we need to know where we where we've come from to see exactly how far, but also just man, 2002, this is a shit year <laughs> for pro wrestling in that way. Lord, um, well. Like you said, like the article lands on a very optimistic tone going forward. And, you know, in that you do speak to some very optimistic uh, figures from the past as well. You know, I, I remember in, in the article, you say that some of the genesis of writing this piece um, outside of, you know, an avenue for your 
to come out yourself was the death of Pat Patterson and looking at the legacy that he left behind, um, as well as, you know, touching on people like Chris Canyon as well. Um, so I guess out of the, the, the positive moments that you drew from in the piece, like which ones stood out to you uh, the most in, in, in terms of like inspiring you to look forward to what pro wrestling can be? Yeah, Chris Canyon, I don't think is, is obviously isn't a, a, a positive thing overall because of, uh, sadly he ended up taking. Yes. I, I think I think the Chris Canyon case, and I try, I hope I convey this is is complicated in some ways because he had he had a lot of his own problems, and I'm not trying to imply that everything that happened to Chris Canyon was because of how he was treated in the wrestling industry. Although I do think it it didn't help, um, but. But that's complicated. Um, yeah. the, the the Pat Patterson thing, I think, is is that that in a way that was what I thought was one of the most interesting things about the premise of the article before I'd written it was that on the one hand you've got all these incidents in wrestling history of how LGBTQ people or characters are, are presented on screen, and that history is mostly dreadful, uh, certainly up until the end of the. 20th century and into the 21st century. But behind the scenes, sometimes, I want to be clear that this is sometimes not always, but actually some of these people who were, they didn't, most of these guys who were, who were LGBTQ at the time didn't feel like they could be openly talk about it with their peers in the locker room, but it was one of those things that was known and wasn't talked about. Um, and yet they were still completely accepted. No one had a problem wrestling them. No one had a problem sharing a locker room with them. Um, and Pat Patterson was one of those positive cases. And I find that really interesting because, as I say, pro wrestling's output to on television throughout many, many years in terms of this stuff has been, was really bad. And yet, actually, I think it was while far from imperfect, was probably way ahead of other sports in terms of acceptance for some of its LGBTQ people, in real life people. So I don't think Pat Patterson would have been likely to get the same level of acceptance in a, an NFL locker room or in a, you know, in England in a Premier League, a Premier League football, soccer locker room. You know, I, I doubt he would have been able to do that in fact in in the premier league over here there is there's still i don't think i think i'm right in saying there hasn't been anyone who is a, a current active player on a major team who has who has come out while they're still at the peak of their career in fact i'm sure that's true so the fact that that's still true in in football over here in 2021 suggests to you how far it lags behind wrestling on some of this stuff. So it's a really odd kind of paradox, I think, that while wrestling's track record of how it's presented characters on screen, like I say, has been, has been bad, although it's getting better, in the locker room behind the scenes, the level of acceptance was, the, the track record is a lot better. And I, 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 I struggle to figure out why that, why that kind of disparity uh, exists. So I think maybe, wrestling what my guess is that wrestling is so full of people who have felt like they are 
misfits or whatever in society for for one reason or another that maybe people who work in wrestling have learned to become even back in the day you know learned to be more open-minded and accepting of, of different lifestyles than 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 other parts of society maybe whereas in terms of how they present it on television i think most promoters might say well my job as a promoter in the 1970s or the 1980s or whatever was to do whatever I could to get the crowd to react. And if the crowd would boo someone who they thought was gay, then I'm going to put a gay heel out there. So, you know, if you were a promoter from that time, you might say, well, don't blame me, blame societal attitudes of the time. Now, I think that would be a, a, a bit of a cop out. I think that would be letting people, letting promoters off the hook a little bit, but but it's an interesting argument to have, right? How much responsibility does a wrestling promoter in the 1980s or the 1990s have to to be progressive and to and to be uh, accepting of all people, or or is there is the sole extent of their responsibility to do whatever will draw cheers and boos from the crowd? And if it's the latter, then they didn't do anything wrong, but I think they maybe have a little bit more responsibility than that. I'm with you on that as well. I think that you, especially if you're in a leadership role with a company, and this goes beyond pro wrestling, like a leadership role with any organization, really, if you aren't um, putting that attitude out there for your for the rest of your organization to see, then how do you expect that attitude to really um, gain any real momentum? In, in any way so yeah it falls it falls on people at the top to kind of put those those ideas out there even if your main goal still is to like you know make the most money from the product that you put out you still need to make sure that that you're putting out the right message when it comes to cultural societal matters in that way um yeah i think it's a uh i think it's yeah it's an interesting debate way beyond wrestling right it's, and, and not just on lgbtq issues this this whole discussion of well how you know people are a product of the times they lived in the fact that your grandparents might be more racist than you were or are or whatever you know like like are they to blame for that or is it uh, is it because of the times they they lived in you know there's you could have a, a pretty healthy intellectual debate about the extent of people's personal responsibility in terms of that kind of stuff, regardless of what historical era they they live in. And, and it is complicated. I'm not denying it's complicated, but I also don't want to excuse every bad thing that ever happened in pro wrestling just by shrugging my shoulders and saying, ah, it was the 80s. That's what things were like. You know, I think I think we have to have a slightly higher standard than that in terms of the the way we look back at how things were done. Yeah, I mean, the only way to unweave those complexities is to like have conversations about them and like show exactly like where these viewpoints can can transition to, you know, like you can look to an, an, a product of an era in a way, but like that doesn't mean you don't need to meet standards of a new era in that way. So I'm, yeah, I think we're on the same page there, definitely. And that kind of feeds into why I did um, like say put put Canyon in that conversation of positive in this because i'm with you canyon's legacy is complicated in a lot of ways and, and obviously did not ended tragically 
in in the way that it did. But when I look to to Canyon and, and his experience, you know, coming out post WWE, um, I, I look at Canyon as a predecessor to an idea, whether specifically in pro wrestling or, you know, more culturally overall, of how to represent masculinity of gay men. Um, and I think that, you know, seeing Canyon push to play a, a, an out gay character on WWE programming that didn't rely on the, you know, quote unquote flamboyant uh, characteristics that are most notably associated with characters that are, you know, either LGBTQ or coded LGBTQ on, on camera. That, I think that that was probably the, the main positive takeaway from Candy's experience specific to LGBTQ identities for me, because it's something that we still are discussing now. And, and it's definitely a talking point over in the States, you know, where we have um, people um, in all along the LGBTQ spectrum that run the gamut from their presentations in pro wrestling. Like we have, we have deathmatch guys who are out. We have, um, you know, guys like Paro um, who are all Japan regulars and do death matches here and, and are straight up power guys who are very proud of like the, the, the masculinity that they put out there and not, and are not at all anything like, like that flamboyant nature. And Canyon to me was um, one of the predecessors when it comes to that, when it comes to proliferating that idea within pro wrestling. And I think that that focus on how to interpret masculinity um, is why wrestling in a way has been better about uh, professional sports in terms of acceptance because like so many like like you said it's already kind of a culture of misfits and it's already people that are like finding exaggerated versions of themselves and different definitions of who they see as as themselves as people just to be able to go out and perform um talk to me a little bit about like your feelings whenever you like started to really find out about you know canyon's motivations around around depicting masculinity of gay males in a different way yeah i wasn't really aware of i mean i would heard the name but like i said earlier i i didn't watch a lot of wcw in in its later years and so i, I didn't know that much about chris canyon um and he didn't really feature very prominently when he was in wwe for those couple of years and so he wasn't really on my radar and until by the time his his book his autobiography came out, and which sadly was the same year that he took his own life in 2010. I by then I was I was out to myself. I was out to my friends and most of my friends and family. So so I I read that book in 2010 with interest and learned a lot about a how complicated the person he was, but b how how he did try to be a pioneer. You know, he did he did recognize that. The sorts of things I'm talking about in the article that there weren't there weren't any kind of positively presented LGBTQ characters in wrestling, and he wanted to blaze a, a trail in in that sense. And apparently, he wrote to after he 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 tried to do that himself, and, and was he says he was shot down by creative or whatever when he wanted to do that. He apparently wrote a letter to. Uh, I don't know if it was a Stephanie or someone, but Stephanie McMahon, a, a bit later when he heard on the grapevine that 
Orlando Jordan was pitching a, a bisexual gimmick or, or some, some version of what he ended up doing in, in TNA. And so he was really, and I think he was kind of upset that, that someone else was going to do it because it had been his, he felt it had been his idea. You know, so he's like, hey, if you want to do that gimmick, bring me back and, and I'll do that. And this must have been in 2006 or, or, or whatever it was. And so um, he, was, he, he was brave in a way. Like he was trying to do something that hadn't been done. And in the end, his, his own demons, you know, overcame him. But it was, it was important what he tried to do and... I would suspect, I, I don't know, but I would suspect that what he did helped open the door for someone like Darren Young, Fred Rosser in 2013 to be the first guy who, who's sort of actively vocal about his, his sexuality be, you know, being a gay man on WWE television in 2013. And so, so Canyon definitely deserves his place in that pantheon of of people who kind of uh, paved the way for for people like like Darren Young, and then all the people in the indie scene you've been talking about, and, and for me to be able to talk about myself openly, he is one hundred percent in that list of people who we need to be grateful to. Mm-hmm. Now, and and speaking to the, to the names that that we've discussed, like going forward, like I think. Um, I think we both are in a place where looking at the scene now heading into 2021 is probably at its healthiest in terms of representation and positive representation for that matter because you know bad representation is not good representation obviously um but you know like with pride pro the establishment over there um you know covid permitting them being able to run their show um at london pride and a number of other places over here um there's just a, a wide swath of positive uh, people to look to for this movement um, continuing to grow and, and flourishing, honestly. Even looking at the major companies, looking at WWE, they, they have the most out talent on their roster that they've ever had. And it, yeah. runs, the, it runs the spectrum. I mean, everybody from Jake Atlas to, to Piper Niven, you know, like it's just, it's all over the place and it's awesome to see. And, and, Almost every major company has at least one per, one out person on their roster. I think the only one that I can think of, I don't think Ring of Honor has anyone that's out right now. Um, but I don't know. Like looking forward for for you, what what do you see in 2021 and beyond um, for LGBTQ representation in pro wrestling? Well, we, we were talking about Darren Young, and and I think one of the most uplifting things about his story is the way he was received by WWE. When he when he did come out, and it was it, in a way, he kind, I guess he kind of picked an inconvenient time for them in a sense because it was a slam weekend, right? And so, well, maybe not because maybe it gave him more publicity going into the, going into the pay per view. Calculated. Like it was, um, but he he talks about how welcoming Triple H and Stephanie were, how Vince McMahon took twenty minutes to to talk to him and all that kind of stuff, and then to talk about his his own friendship with Pat Patterson and. And so in a way, I guess you could say the positive reception that that Darren Young received from his bosses and from his peers wasn't that unexpected because of the Pat Patterson story and because of because of all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's still good to hear, though, 
what's different with with Baron Young's story is that it's all it was done in it was public and it was done in a way where he wasn't made to feel lesser in any way for having uh, having come out and and also that they didn't then exploit the fact that he was known as oh that's the gay wrestler you know they didn't then try to turn that into some like stereotyped cliched comedy gimmick you know and so I do think that was an important step forwards and now you see like you mentioned you see such a great awesome range of characters particularly on the indie scene like you talked about Paro I think he's great uh, over here, Pride Pro, who I mentioned in the article, they're a new, a new promotion that's going to feature LGBTQ talent. And like you said, they're going to try and kick things off at London Pride this uh, this July. Um, but there's things over in the US as well. I know there's that Effie's uh, the Gay Brunch that, that was part of the GCW Collective for what, what would have been WrestleMania weekend and then got shifted into the, uh, into the autumn. And so there's loads of it. And it's important that there is that variety like like for me for for 17 year old or 18 year old me to to see a paro would have been first of all it would have been extremely confusing because it would have been like it would have been totally contrary to everything i'd been told a gay person was but in the end it would have been extremely healthy because it would have been so important for me to see i honestly as an 18 year old this sounds crazy and maybe i lived a very sheltered life, you know, <laughs> childhood, but but I literally did not know it was possible to be gay and to be anything other than very like effeminate. Mm. You know, so to see that kind of range of characters is important. And I want to emphasize when I say that, I'm 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 very conscious of the fact that that people who are deemed like gay guys who are deemed effeminate sometimes get picked on for that as if like being mask, you know, masculine is like uh uh, an essential thing or is a is a is a quality it's not that it's really not that one is better than the other you know being masculine or being effeminate if you want to use those labels it's not that one is better than the other but um, as someone who for whatever reason has always you know growing up was always more mask <laughs> if you want to say that like it's 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 really it would it would have been really helpful to me when I was trying to figure things out and went through all the mental health issues I did, you know, between kind of the ages of 17 and 21 kind of time, figuring it out. If I'd known that there was, that you, that any kind of person could be gay. I, and it, and it, it doesn't mean that you must fit a certain mold. And that's kind of the point I try to make in the article, I hope, is that, is that the problem with wrestling's past in terms of how the characters have been presented is that it's a one-size-fits-all comedy heel stereotype right whereas those things would have been okay if they were also positive baby-faced characters with a variety of personalities and and stories you know so i think that's the uh, that's what i hope the the takeaway is and the reason i'm optimistic is that like you say there's there's the such a range of of both characters and you know real life people in the wrestling industry now who are who are open about their sexuality and 
it's it's just really heartwarming to to see it headed that way. Hmm. I guess my my last question for you would be um, if Pride Pro came knocking needing a commentator, would uh would Dave Bradshaw be available, you think? Uh, I, I'm always open to hearing that. I, I, I think that they've got James O'Leary doing it. Uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm very ah. happy because he, um, I, I have, you've mentioned him being a ring announcer for, for, uh, for GWF, but they, um, he, he does, he does commentate as well. And in fact, we commentated Legacy, which is like GWF's WrestleMania, you know, their big show. That mm. was one where I went to Berlin and did it live. And so me and, um, me and James did it it uh, together and James is great so I certainly wouldn't want to uh, steal his thunder but um, but no regardless I, I think it's awesome that we're now at a point on the UK scene where where something like Pride Pro can uh, can happen and and uh, whether I'm um, you know, involved in it or not I, I, I want to uh, support what they are trying to achieve and you know I hope that others will will follow them. No, I think it's an awesome sentiment to have going forward. Like, I think things are moving in the right direction. And, you know, I, I'm just going to, this is a personal thing for me. I'm just put that, put this out there. Like if, if I was pride pro, I would try and get that GWF band back together. Get that, that, uh, that all LGBTQ broadcast team. And right. I should, I should hire you. My, you should be my agent. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I'm that good, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Well, Dave, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and taking time out to, to speak with me today. Um, let everybody know where they can find you online and where they can uh, read your, your article. Uh, yeah, so the article is out in the current issue of uh, WrestleTalk magazine, which if you're in the UK, you can get in news agents if they're open at the moment. Um, so like places like WH Smith and Asda and Tesco and, and places like that. Otherwise, you can order either order a hard copy or download an electronic copy at wrestleshop.com that's regardless of where you are in the world wrestleshop.com if you'd like to have a copy of this month's wrestle talk magazine in terms of social media you can catch me on uh, twitter at dave bradshaw or on instagram and facebook at dave bradshaw 83 and i have a website as well which is www.davebradshaw.tv awesome well thank you dave thank you My thanks once again to Dave for coming on the show and you know sharing his experiences, uh, some really awesome stories, and and just overall his his journey to self realization and feeling comfortable with living out and proud uh, as the the person that he is. Uh, I really hope that he uh, ends up somewhere on the Pride Pro. Uh, broadcasts alongside uh, James O'Leary at some point, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm just excited. I'm excited. I'm always excited whenever I meet somebody who's just, you know, who's known themselves for a while, but is showing themselves publicly for the first time. In whenever it comes to expressing, you know, their identity in in this way, and this, I don't know. I was just glad that I had the chance to to meet Dave and and to talk extensively with him. Definitely check out his piece in Russell Talk magazine uh pick that up uh and i don't know it's just a really great read and it comes from the heart a lot of it does uh a lot more discussion on some of the topics that we spoke up here today 
but yeah, that's going to do it for us here this week. We are uh, heading towards the end of Journalist January here. So much so that uh, I guess Journalist January might be a bit of a misnomer because it is extending into February a little bit because next week is our final installment. Uh, we uh, I normally don't announce guests ahead of time, but I'm really excited about uh, who we have coming on next week as well. So uh, from Fanbyte, Colette Aaron, uh, someone who's very familiar to listeners of the show. Normally, Colette comes on to talk about AEW pay-per-views with us here on the show, but uh, this time we're talking about Colette, which, when you say it that way, makes it sound a bit scarier if I put myself in the other uh, side of of this uh, uh, situation here. So, yeah, it's fun, though. I, 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 I really enjoyed getting to know uh, the people that I have on the show, um, especially whenever it comes to people that normally are are behind the scenes and covering and critiquing uh, the industry. So come back next week for Colette. But until then, y'all stay messy. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. And everyone have a very, very safe and fun fight forever. Bye! She made a deal with the demon so a lover could live With the moon is high and the devil is shot and stick It's the formula six, six, six